um, this this uh, Christmas season, this Advent season, we're going to be preaching through um, this theme of being home for Christmas for a number of reasons. One, uh, for a lot um, of folks uh, that sang that song and songs like it growing up, uh, we have many in our church family that are very familiar with the Christmas story. Um, grew up around the Christmas tree, going to Christmas Eve service, reading the Christmas story together. But we've also found in the life of our church here that we have many who are coming to faith in Christ that may be hearing these same stories for the very first time, even this year. It's this beautiful mix of folks who have heard this for 50, 60, some of us 80 or 90 years, sitting next to other folks who are hearing the words for the first time. Um, second, I don't know about you and your life, but you ever remember like back to your teens or 20s? Those are still in your teens, right? Like this old, maybe this is still the case. But I remember like as a teenager in my early 20s, like somebody could call me at 10 o'clock on a Friday night and say, hey, what are you up to? I was like, just waiting for somebody to call. Where are we going? You just go out and have a great time and end up at somebody's house and just stay up really late. But now I'm entering this weird season where if somebody calls on Friday at like 4.30, I'm already saying, you know, I think it's getting a little late. Like, I think we're home for the night. And my kids are like, Dad, the sun's still up, man. It's this weird kind of mix. But I've watched as the Lord has allowed me to have a home and a family that I really enjoy. I want to be around them. I enjoy being home. One of the things we're going to be talking about over the next couple weeks is this idea that God calls all of us, yes, to come to actual homes, but even more than that, to gather around with one another, continuing to remember the story, the story that God has passed down from generation to generation. The Advent season includes the four Sundays leading up to Christmas when the church looks back at Christ's first arrival in Bethlehem and also looks forward to his second coming. For the next four Sundays, we'll be reflecting on these themes. Today, we're going to be talking about hope and what Christian hope looks like. We'll talk about peace and love and joy as we reflect on who God is and what he's done. The word Advent means arrival. As we've said, the arrival the first time in the manger in Bethlehem, which was subtle, like snow falling on a gentle pasture. And we expectantly wait for his promised return that will not be as subtle. The whole world will see. The Advent season is an invitation for us to step back from our daily lives and to see the big picture of God's great salvation. God has given us a reason to hope. But we are thankful that as Christians, our hope is not built on a feeling. Our hope is built on a person, on the promise of Jesus Christ. If you know me very well, you know I'm a, I'm a feeling kind of guy, whether it's herding cows or putting up a Christmas tree or watching fun movies. We like to talk and laugh and have a good time. I get kind of passionate even on Sunday mornings. But I'm thankful that my Christian faith is not founded on a feeling I may or may not have. It is founded on the promise of God. Christmas lights tell us about Christmas time. Anybody in here a big fan of putting up Christmas lights? We did, didn't we, yesterday. Let's go. Some of us were putting those things up. As you drive around, drinking hot cocoa maybe, looking up Christmas lights, we know that Christmas is getting even closer. Christmas lights and off time 
bring about a little sense of feeling good, right? Put on the Christmas music, you're jamming out. Some of y'all have been listening to it since July 4th, you know, like just kind of keep going with the Christmas time. All the things that the season creates can create a sense of feeling warm and good and excitement. We need the feelings. But even more than that, we need the hope that goes beyond the feelings that can come well on some days, but also on other days, not so well. I know it's already 1130. Y'all have had time to get some breakfast or brunch and kind of sleep off a little bit last night, even if it's, even if it's football. I know, but we got to say it, y'all. We got to acknowledge the elephant in the room. You know what I'm saying? That really was not planned. It just happened like that. Promise. Whatever we put our hope in that's based off of a feeling, y'all, those are fun times. Whether it's sports, sometimes even relationships, can be the economy, can be a political party. I don't know. Hopefully that's not where your hope comes from, but trusting in things that come and go. I'm reminded of one of my favorite Christmas movies that is not the most theologically accurate, but I think some people may have seen it called Christmas Vacation. We'll be quoting from the TBS version, all right, or the TNT version. As a child, that's all we watched. And as I got older, I watched the unedited version, realized Cuddins and Eddie, you know, they just said things that my dad didn't let us say back in the day. But this isn't the whole sermon, just one little glimpse here of a fun story. There's one scene, if you haven't seen it, it was made in 1989, I'm not spoiling anything. If you haven't seen it, there's this one scene where Clark Griswold has decorated the whole house with Christmas lights. It's covered from top to bottom. He's trying to get the lights to come on. You know what I'm talking about? Goes in the basement, flicks lights on, they come on. He goes back in the basement, flicks them off, back and forth, back and forth. Finally, his wife has the epiphany. She goes downstairs, flips the light switch. Clark goes, when the lights all come on, right? In that moment, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Clark turns around and he first sees his mom, who's like a good mom. And she says, oh, Clark, baby, I'm so proud of you. He says, thanks, mom. Then he goes to his mother-in-law, who says something rude. And then he goes to his father-in-law, and he says, dad. And he gets kind of awkward. And his father-in-law says, as they're looking at a million lights on this house, you don't have any little twinkly climb, twinkly kind of lights, Clark. And Clark says, thanks for noticing, dad. You know, like, bring me back down. Then he gets to the end of the receiving line, and he sees cousin Eddie, who has driven in a fancy RV that's parked in the driveway. And Eddie asks him a question that leads to my favorite line in the whole movie. Then we're going to talk about the Bible. Eddie says, you're surprised to see me, Clark? And Clark Griswold says, Eddie, if I woke up tomorrow morning with my head sewn to the carpet, I would not be more surprised than I am right now in this moment. Just totally surprised. Why would I share a story like that on a Sunday morning? Biblical hope is more than a Christmas season that will come and go. Biblical hope is the confident trust that God will always keep his promises. The Hebrew word for hope is literally translated waiting with expectation. Waiting with expectation. This idea that we're not just hoping for a win that may or may not come. We're not just hoping for the family to get along at Christmas time or hoping for the finances to come in or hoping for the Amazon shipment to arrive in time, right? This is much more than that. This is an expectant hope of waiting, a trust in a promise that has been made but has yet to be fulfilled. We know that there will be times in life when the family does get together in the setting, maybe in the, I was going to preach from this today, but I thought 
everybody might just fall asleep, so we're just going to stand. But knowing that there will be some Christmases where the family does get along and everybody does well and the lights are working and everybody's celebrating, but there will also be Christmases when the Cousin Eddie shows up and surprises us. I've been on a few mountaintops with the Lord in my life, but I've yet to be able to live every day on that mountaintop. The valleys do tend to come. The comments that can remind us of the reality of the world, there are only twinkling lights, Clark, tend to come into our midst, which is why we as Christians are called to build our hope on the Lord. Wait with expectation. The word Messiah means anointed one. The kings in the Old Testament were anointed to become kings of Israel. So King David was designated as the chosen one to lead the nation. He was anointed as the king of Israel. What's interesting about many Old Testament stories, as well as many more New Testament stories, is we've had a little bit of a shift in the American culture. For a lot of American history, a majority of Americans, even though many did not attend regular church services, were familiar with the biblical language. So you could have a conversation at work with someone and say something like, well, it's like David and Goliath. It's like Noah in the ark. It's like Moses in the Ten Commandments. And most people would at least be able to acknowledge, yeah, I know what you are talking about. But in the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a significant shift where now a majority of Americans do not know even the most basic of some of the the Christian stories from the scripture. So if you were to say to someone who doesn't know the Bible or go to church at all, it's like David and Goliath. There's a better chance now, definitely than there was 20 or 30 years ago, that that person may say, no, who is that? We have two options there. We can either say, Lord, we're going somewhere in a handbasket. Like, this is just a mess. Nobody knows. Some of those things are very true. But I think God's calling us to look at it through a different lens. It's an opportunity to share with the world the greatest stories that have ever been told. To meet people who are grown-ups and teenagers and kids who have never heard these stories before and say, let me share this story with you. Come home for Christmas. So like King David, he was anointed as king and ruled as Israel's most prosperous king. God made a promise to David that there would be a king who would come from his line that would sit on his throne forever. That's good news for the Israelites. That's good news for the Jewish people and the Hebrews, right? What do they take that to mean? We're going to be here forever. But what happens in David's life? Y'all, he eventually died. Then his son Solomon takes over the throne. And then the kids get into a few different things. After Solomon passes, what happens? The nation of Israel is split into two. You got Israel and Judah. A lot of mess takes place. Very shortly after that, the people are taken into exile to live in other countries for hundreds of years. While they're in exile, they begin to continue to tell the stories of the scripture and share those stories with the people groups they're around. All the while, expectantly waiting for the Messiah to come, for the line of David to continue to be fulfilled. We preach through some of Nehemiah's story a few months ago when Nehemiah and some different folks went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. The whole purpose of that was to get everything ready for the Messiah to come, for David's line to continue to thrive. But something happened after the exile, after Nehemiah and the minor prophets. If you open your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 in just a moment here. What's the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi. If you get in Malachi and get to the very end of it, like mine here, you got Malachi chapter 4, Malachi 4, and then 5 and 6. And the last verse in the Old Testament says this, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers. It's talking about the 
coming prophet, the coming Messiah, the anointed one that would fulfill the line of David forever, says, and he, that Messiah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of other destruction. Then after that, in my Bible, it says period, and then it says the New Testament on the next page. That's traditionally how it goes. You got the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament's before Christ. New Testament's the birth of Christ. We, as modern-day followers of Christ, have the ability to go, oh, Malachi 3.6, oh, the fathers of children, children of their fathers, that makes sense. New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, we immediately turn the page. But y'all, when this was being given, it wasn't a page turn. It was 400 years between the conclusion of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 400 years of complete silence from God. No more prophets, no more words of the Lord, just an expectant waiting on God to fulfill his promise. So as we read this story today, some of us heard the story about John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth many times. We might read and go, yeah, it makes sense. It's right before Jesus is born. But I want to invite us, y'all. Imagine that you're Zechariah or Elizabeth in this story here. And you've been waiting on the Messiah to come your entire life, as did your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. How did they remember? In this culture, everybody would gather around the fire in the evening time. And they would continue to share the stories of who they were, of what God had done, of what God had promised. And they were able to maintain that and hold on to it. So as we open up this today, we're going to read a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 5. A lot of verses, but I just invite you, if you've heard this story before, as many of you have, man, read as if you're hearing it for the first time. If you've never heard it before, y'all, this is really good stuff. Liam, uh, Liam, uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. That's important because he's, I think Luke is pointing out here, who's a doctor. Luke was a physician. Luke's pointing out these just weren't two made up people. This is their lineage. These are actual people that people can go and look at. Verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years translation, they were were kind of old. Now, while he was serving, this is Zechariah, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Verse 11, and there appeared to him, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. For good reason. He was seeing an angel. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, before the coming prophet, the Messiah. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Look at this. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He's quoting Malachi 4. He's saying, this is the Messiah. He's at the doorstep. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18, and Zechariah said, praise God, it's true. That's not what he says. Zechariah said, how? How shall I know this? For I am an old man. Do not quote this on your spouse if you think your spouse is old. But that's what he said. And my wife is in biblical words. He said, my wife is advanced in years. Translation, he calls his wife old here. All right, to the end. My wife is advanced in years. Verse 19. Then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Not just, he's not just a random one of the thousands. He's the angel from the Old Testament. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. That's a lot of words to read on a Sunday morning, but the scripture says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord lives forever. Y'all were called to have the type of hope that Zechariah and Elizabeth have. The type of hope that is a expectant waiting on the fulfilled promises of God. Three verses that really stuck out to me. I'm just going to reread these. We're going to go through these and share this morning. One is in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. It's amazing to me that the first words God utters through an angel after 400 years of silence are, do not be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. It's impressive to me also that Zechariah saw an angel. He had a good reason to be afraid. But for our conversation today, I want to look at this line here, your prayer has been heard. What was Nehemiah praying about? For God to break his silence after 400 years to open with something like this. Now, he was a priest in the temple. He was burning incense. The guy had a job to do. So there's a good chance he had spent many of his years, many of his prayers were for the expectant coming Messiah. Lord, when is the anointed one coming? When will the line of David be fulfilled? When will you make your next move? Those prayers, without a doubt, were being offered. But the angel does something else. He gives us a glimpse into Nehemiah, into Zechariah's personal prayer line. Maybe it sounded like that. Nehemiah's personal prayer life. When he said, your prayer has been heard, your wife Elizabeth will have a child. What does that mean for us? Again, y'all, these were real people who were really living life. In our house, sometimes we still kind of have a little fun arguments about who gets to pray over mealtime. It's a good time. Those are good prayers. We're like, okay, you do the prayer. You do the prayer. You do the prayer. Those prayers are very important. And I think we should all give thanks for the meals before we eat them. We all think here, we're catching a glimpse into something different. To me, the angel is saying here, your prayer has been heard over and over and over again. Let's be honest with each other for a second, all right? In the 
living room stage design. Some of us have prayed the same prayer over and over for years without an answer from the Lord. With as many people as we've had join us for services today, there are very likely quite a few folks who have been praying for the same thing for years of their life. The type of prayer I believe that the angel is referencing here isn't even the type of prayer that Zechariah prayed publicly in front of his friends. To me, these are very likely the type of prayers that Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed when they went home tired and discouraged and frustrated and broken. Elizabeth was without child in our day. That would be okay. We on her day. Her husband's a priest in the temple. There is very good chance that the mothers and the fathers and the sisters and a lot of the church folk probably said things. We don't have the text, but maybe. About even Elizabeth and Zechariah when they would come to church. Man, I wish the Lord would show his favor upon them. What are they doing wrong? What have they done to deserve not having a child? Have you ever had a prayer that you haven't shared with anybody else, but you've been brutally honest with the Lord? I talked to a friend of mine from our church this week, called me after he had a prayer in his truck, and he said, you think other people can? I said, probably so. I mean, make sure nobody's looking around. Sometimes he was nervous, but his question was, he was very honest with the Lord. He was angry. He poured his prayers out to the Lord. Y'all, I'm not the smartest guy. The Lord's big enough to take it. You're not scaring him. (laughs) This is those type of prayers. Your prayer has been heard. Can you imagine what it was like for Zechariah when he went home to Elizabeth at first? All right, now this is the text. These are real people. First, let's be honest. You think he walked home and she was like, hey, babe, how was your time in the temple? And he went, hmm, because <laughs> he was mute and he couldn't talk. I think she said, are you not going to speak to me? Hmm. He's like, make your own dinner. You know, what did that conversation look like? I'm thinking they had to figure some stuff out. But for him to eventually relay to her their sign language or writing it down, God's heard our prayers. We've prayed for so long. He really was listening. If you are right now praying about something that has yet to come into being, I'm not saying name and claim it. I'm saying that you and I are called to trust that God is faithful to hear those prayers as they're being lifted up. If there is something going on in your life right now and you're praying your heart out, y'all, come on, let's be honest. We're fasting and we're praying and we're pleading for the Lord. And it feels like the prayers are going up, hitting the ceiling and coming right back down. God broke his silence by first saying, do not fear me through an angel. And then he said, I've heard your prayers. Continue to pray the most difficult prayers. To me, this is one of the greatest gifts of a local church body. If you get to a time, as all of us, I believe, have, where you get to a season or a day or an hour, and you're like, I don't even have the strength to pray this prayer anymore. Ask a brother or sister in the faith to pray on your behalf. I've had people pray over me after me and my wife have prayed over some things and not gotten a result that we thought. We've had brothers and sisters walk alongside us, so we'll pray for you too. Continue to pray the prayers. Second, in verse 20, the angel says this. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which would be fulfilled in their 
time. Just those three words, in their time. As I've read and meditated over this, I have been reminded, wouldn't it be wild if every time we were unfaithful and didn't trust the Lord, he made us silent for nine months? Like, how quiet would church be? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Like, mm. Good thing RG knows our coffee. Like, he'd be able to fix it. That's where Zechariah is. He's like, man, I didn't trust the Lord. Why didn't he trust the Lord? He had a little faith. No, it didn't make any sense. What did he say? His words, not mine. My wife's old. I'm old. We can't have any kids. We've been waiting for a Messiah. For 400 years, plus some. You know, what is the angel saying? First, out of this, it wasn't a line, but I think it's a good lesson. God can rebuke us in our disbelief. I mean, there are going to be times when I think the Lord can say, let me address some disbelief that's going on in your life right now. But for our conversation today, in their time. Again, what's the last words of Malachi? The last words of the Old Testament? He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. 400 years later at a temple with some dude that's burning incense, what does God say through the angel Gabriel? I'm going to break the silence by promising you, here's coming the one, like you're about to have a baby that's going to proclaim the good news of the one that is coming to restore the hearts of the children to the father. The Hebrew people have been waiting on the Lord for over 400 years to speak. Zechariah was still serving the Lord while he waited, not knowing when or how God would make his next move. But he continued to hope and trust in God. He continued to wait with expectation. It was difficult, but I believe Zechariah knew that the Lord's timing is perfect. Sometimes I get frustrated at mega corporations. Let's name one, Amazon. You ever order something off of Amazon? This is the world where I live in, okay? Order something and it's promised to be there in two days. You get a little frustrated because it takes three. Like, what are we doing, Amazon? I ordered it two days ago. It should be here by now. And I'm reminded... I used to play games like the Oregon Trail. Anybody else used to play that game? Can you imagine playing the game Oregon Trail, let alone being on the Oregon Trail live? And you're like, man, I wish we had some bacon. Two days later, I get jealous of the commercials on TV sometimes. I love MoCo. I don't want to live anywhere else. But some commercials on TV are in big cities. It's like same-day delivery. You order it, we'll have it in 12 minutes. You know where they don't do that? Buckhead. It takes Costco two days to get to my house. You know what I'm saying? I'm just being honest. Fun things. But I can order things from the largest, one of the largest warehouse stores in the country, Costco. And two days later, it is at my front porch. That's impressive. We live in the most instant gratification culture to ever walk the earth. You and I have more advancement at our fingertips 24-7 than any generation prior. We can have it immediately. And then get frustrated, complain, and probably get it free if it takes 12 hours longer. If we are not careful, the culture that we live in will superimpose itself on the faith that we have. There are very likely some of us who have been praying the same prayer for a long time, not knowing why God hasn't answered us in a manner worthy of our understanding. This is difficult for me to grasp. The people of Israel waited for the Lord to speak for four hundred years. Moses and the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Could it be possible, even in some of our most difficult moments, in some of our most honest prayers, that the Lord may not answer us in the next hour or 48 hours or two days? To me, what is sad is that we have some who have left the church, not to this church, 
or even left the faith because the Lord didn't answer their prayers in the appropriate time. Y'all, we've got to remind ourselves, we are not God. It's his time. He is perfect. I'm not saying this is a guy who doesn't know what it's like to live life, y'all. We've been around the Christmas tree, right? Y'all ever been around a Christmas tree where the grandma's been praying the same prayer for 30 years? I have. Didn't share this the first two services, just thought about it. I had a family member that would disappear for years at a time. Every year, I would watch my grandmother buy presents for everybody, including one of her sons. And we'd all, at our house, we did an old school thing because we had time on our hands. There were only five of us. We would each take our time. Everybody would open their presents one at a time. And we would sit in a circle. And it always come to my uncle's pile of presents. And we'd sit for a little bit, and then we'd skip over it and go to the next one. As a kid, I just thought, I guess it's just something Memal does. But one day I asked her as a teenager, I said, Memal, because it would hurt her heart. I said, why do you do that every year? As an arrogant child, I said, you know he's never coming home. And she said, but if he does, he deserves to have presents to open at Christmas. Some things take time. There will be some presents that aren't open this Christmas because of a broken relationship. There will be some hurts and wounds that will not have yet healed because it is too recent. Which is why we must put our hope in the only thing in the universe that is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Feelings change. People change. Cultures change. God stays the same. The Hebrew people waited and trusted. And as the angel told Zechariah, in their time, these things will happen. Lastly, this verse from verse 25. Elizabeth, y'all, she gets pregnant. The first words we hear from her, she says, thus the Lord has done for me. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days which he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. What does that line mean to you today? Thus the Lord has done for me. God saw Elizabeth and Zechariah in their pain. Isn't it wild? Our God is powerful enough to open the conversation to the Messiah of the world being born of a virgin in a village named Bethlehem in a manger while at the same time ministering to the hurts of the people that would have the good news to share. What has God done for you? I know nobody's probably going to ask. It'd be kind of weird if they did. But sometime this week, somebody says, what'd you, what'd you do on Sunday? I went to church. What'd y'all talk about? I don't know, something about, thus the Lord's done for me. Uh, very likely, unlikely someone would actually ask you. But if someone ever did, what has he done for you? How would you answer that? Y'all, I want us to be the type of Christians, the type of Christ followers who will not get asked that question and have to say, ah, let me think on it and get back to you. To me, this is the type of question that's of the Lord if we're ever asked, where our first response really should be, how much time do you have? Come to my house for dinner. 
Let's go get a cup of coffee. I've had so many stories I want to share with you about what God has done for me. What has God done for you? You know, John the Baptist would grow up to be a man. The next time we hear about John the Baptist, Mary is pregnant. Holy Spirit, it's beautiful, immaculate conception. She goes because she's concerned about the culture, a lot going on. She goes to stay with Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth's here. Elizabeth's already pregnant. Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to stay with Elizabeth in her time of growing a baby. And the scripture says, as Mary walks up with Jesus living inside of her, beauty of motherhood, that Elizabeth runs out to greet her. And what does the text say? It says that John the Baptist leapt inside of Elizabeth because Jesus was in another womb that was in another woman nearby. Absolutely wild. The next time we read about John the Baptist, he's a grown man and he's in the wilderness declaring that people should repent of their sins and turn from the Lord. He was crazy, y'all. Eating wild locusts, eating honey, wearing bear skin, like doing his thing. And he was saying things to the Roman government and to the Jewish leadership. He was like, y'all got to repent. Wicked generation. And the leadership said, if you don't stop, we're going to cut your head off. True story. And what does he do? <sighs> Better repent. For he just keeps going. He told the church people of his day, you've got to repent and trust in the Lord. Beautiful, crazy thing happens. Years after this, 30 or so odd years after this, John the Baptist is out baptizing people in the Jordan River, telling them to repent of their sins. And Jesus walks up. And the first, some of the first words we have of John the Baptist, it says, Jesus is walking towards him. John looks at the people around him and says, behold, the Lamb of God that's coming to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus comes up to John the Baptist and he says, I want you to baptize me because, he doesn't say that, but if he was me, he probably would. He says, I want you to baptize me and John says, man, I can't baptize you. You're the Messiah. You're the line of David. You're the one that's returning the hearts of the children to the fathers. I've been talking about you my whole life. And what does Jesus say? Baptize me anyway. Why? Jesus had any sins to wash away? It's because of us. All this, y'all, was done for us. For scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? In Romans 3, 23. All have sinned. Who? Everybody. The Pope, Mother Teresa, you, me, your mom, your grandma. Did y'all know that your mama jokes are still a thing? This is a true story. I'm not trying to just digress here. My second grader came home and said, Dad, you're not going to believe what a friend of mine, Christopher. No, his name's not really Christopher. But like Christopher said, your mom, and it hurt him. I was like, Daniel, next time he says that, it wasn't really Christopher. That's a made-up name. I said, well... Next time, and I started sharing your mama jokes from the 90s. But no, even, and I'm not just, all have sinned. Who has sinned? Everybody. Every person. Mothers, fathers, we're all in the same camp. If you're thinking God doesn't want me because I'm me, we're all in the same camp. We're all on the equal playing field. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 reminds us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin separates us from God. But God, in his infinite love, allowed Jesus to be born. Romans 5, 8, 9 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Thus the Lord has done for me.
What has the Lord done for you? When I was eight years old in my bedroom praying next to my window, don't remember a lot of my childhood, but I remember that night. Man, I was praying. God, I need your presence. I need your help. You ever felt the presence of God when he comes around you? Thus the Lord has done for me. Why did Jesus tell John the Baptist to baptize him? To fulfill the words that were told over him years before. Fulfilled another promise. That promise would entail Jesus himself a few years after that going to the cross while he was on the cross as an innocent, perfect man. First Corinthians tells us God made him that knew no sin to become sin for all of us. Knowing that when Jesus was on the cross, y'all, everything I've ever done that is wrong, Jesus took it upon himself. Everything that you have ever done that was sinful, Jesus took it upon himself. And he had it crucified on the cross. They took his body off of the cross and they placed him in a grave. And then three days later, he breathed again and walked out of the grave victorious, leaving the sins of the world behind so that for the rest of eternity, you and me and every other believer could say, thus the Lord has done for me everything that was needed to redeem me. God has done everything in his power to allow all of us into relationship with him. So we've got to ask ourselves, Lord, have I accepted what you have done? He's packaged it up, delivered it out. He said, come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Thus the Lord has done for me. Let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful for your faithfulness today. Lord, I am thankful for allowing us to know who you are and to know what you have done. Lord, for these stories in the text, stories of Zechariah and Elizabeth, stories of John the Baptist, Lord, I thank you for the reality of their lives, for the honesty and the truth of Scripture, for the prayers they prayed, for their expectant waiting, Lord. You were faithful. You met them where they were and gave them, Lord, the best news that had ever been given to the world. Lord, you know this day that there are some, maybe even in this very room, who have been praying the same prayer for a very long time. Or there may be some in our church family that have grown tired and discouraged. Lord, may we have the strength that comes from Christ alone to continue to pray, continue to trust, to ask our brothers and sisters to pray with us. Lord, we trust that your timing is perfect, but Lord, it's hard. For this world is full of white noise that wants to distract us from your voice. For anyone, Lord, that has never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, at this moment, God, I pray that wherever they are, they would have that conversation with you. Scripture says if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives, believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. There's nothing that can separate us from your love, which is ours in Christ Jesus, Lord. If someone here wants to talk to me or 
somebody else just says, man, I need somebody to pray over me. Well, let them do that before they leave this place today. As we lift our voices, remembering what happened in Bethlehem, our hope isn't a feeling. Our hope is in Christ, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name.